Good morning. I feel like February in South Carolina feels to me a bit like Mark's gospel. Um, one week we're really high and excited about the warmth that is coming our way, and then the next week it's, well, today, and freezing cold, and Mark does this to us as well. He, you know, we get these great visions of Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the transfigured Christ. He's healing these demons, and then immediately afterwards, we, we drop down into this, I don't know, almost seems like despair. Oh, he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be ridiculed, and it's this roller coaster ride throughout Mark's gospel, and I think it's no more evident um, than right now in this reading of the Transfiguration. Um, it is a peak. It is perhaps the highest peak until the resurrection, and it will come plummeting down um, to Jerusalem. But I want to give you a, an image or something to think about before we get going into the text. Um, I try to minimize the use of my family in my sermons, but sometimes I can't help it. But I will withhold names other than to say, at some point, um, one of our children needed glasses. And they got the glasses, and it was like their world had changed. They would look at Spanish moss and like, wow, it's amazing. Or, you know, the, the mats. We've got some in the back. You know those mats that you put at doors and, 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 and um, especially commercial areas or, or in, you know, we got them here. Um, they have the ridges in them, right? Apparently, this child could not see the ridges, and she, she was amazed, like, oh my goodness, this mat has texture to it. This world has, has patterns. It, it seems different. But it wasn't the world that was different, right? It was her glasses. She could see. She could see. I want you to think about that as we consider what is happening this morning in Mark's gospel. Jesus has taken three of his disciples, his three closest disciples, Peter and James and John, and he's brought them up on a mountain. They believe it's Mount Hermon, um, scholars do, but we don't know for sure, other than it's a very tall mountain. They go to the top of the mountain, um, presumably to pray, to get away from everything. The other disciples are not there, the crowds are not there, it's just the four of them, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Now, immediately before this, all of the disciples had been at Caesarea Philippi, and they were alone at some point, and Jesus asked them a, a few questions, and he concludes with this question. He says, who do you say that I am? Disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the twelve, says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's gospel, we hear, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a moment of incredible insight, incredible clarity. Peter was seeing things as they really are, and he declared it, Jesus, you are the Christ. But right after that, Jesus says, you're right, but don't tell anyone. You see, this term, Messiah, Christ, is loaded, it is loaded in those days with expectations. Up to this point, Jesus has been spending a lot of time showing the world, showing specifically his disciples who he is. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. He's been teaching. He's been rebuking. He's been authoritative. He is showing them who he is so that Peter can say, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And now Jesus has to break down expectations. It's not the Messiah they expect. It's not the ruler come to conquer the Roman people. It's not 
the king as they expect the king to be driving out the enemies and establishing a nation of Israel. That's not the type of Messiah that Jesus is. So he says, tell no one. Tell no one until you realize what this means for me to be the Messiah. So they've confessed who Jesus is. He says, tell no one. And then he starts to teach them what it looks like. He teaches them who the Messiah is and what he must do. And he says, the Messiah, I, I'll be killed, put to death by the authorities, mocked, scorned, crucified. And on the third day, I will rise again. That was just too much for poor Peter. And he looks at Jesus and he says, or he calls him Messiah. He says, Jesus, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. They're not ready to accept it. They don't, they don't know. They can't understand what this Messiah looks like. And so then that brings us to this passage. Okay? Jesus has taught what the Messiah, who the Messiah is, what it looks like. He's taught what it means to follow the Messiah. And we'll get to that in a little bit. And now finally, he's taken them up, up on the top of this mountain... And he's going to show them something amazing. I guess more specifically, God is going to show them something amazing. They're there on the top of the mountain. They're praying. And then we see in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine the conversation? This seemingly normal day, the seemingly normal hike up a mountain has been turned into this glorious appearance of Jesus. Now he doesn't, it doesn't, he doesn't change who he is, but his whole appearance is completely transformed. He's radiant. He still has a body and he's still a man, but he's radiant. His clothes are washed completely white. You can almost hear Mark struggling to describe the scene. He, they were like, imagine the whitest bleach you could find and they're whiter than that. Completely and totally radiant, intensely white. But as if that wasn't enough, here comes Moses and Elijah, these two great Old Testament figures, both of whom have significance for the end times. You'll remember Moses, he was the great leader raised up by God, sent to Pharaoh to declare to him, let my people go. Let them out of slavery in Egypt, and Moses leads them to the brink of the promised land. And right before he died, God promised the people of Israel, one day, one day, you'll get another prophet like Moses. They were still waiting. They were still waiting. The other one, Elijah. He was the great prophet who never died. Do you remember that Old Testament story that God led him with his, um, with his understudy, Elisha, out into the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan, and there he swooped down in a flaming chariot and carried Elijah into heaven. He never died. The prophet Malachi would predict that before the Messiah returned, a prophet, Elijah, would return to prepare the way. Jesus says that this prophet is John the Baptist, but here we see yet again on this mountain, Elijah, the prophet, the presence of these two is saying something, that the time is ripe. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is Jesus. Now, 
The disciples were a little dumbfounded at this point. Um, Peter blurts out the first thing that comes to mind. Let's, let's build a shelter. Let's celebrate this feast of the tabernacles. It's great that we're here. We'll build three. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why did he say these things? Because he was terrified. He was terrified. He was seeing the glory of God, and he was freaking out. And then verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, the glory of God throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, God's glory is shown in a cloud. A cloud, God present in it, leads the nation of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea. When when God is leading them through the wilderness, they follow the cloud of God's glory. When Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai, the mountain is covered in the cloud of God's glory. When God fills the temple built by Solomon, the cloud of God's glory is so overwhelming that the priests inside have to fall down on their faces. And here on the top of this mountain with the transplendent Jesus and Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John are caught up in the cloud of God's glory. And then verse 8. It's over. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. No radiant face, no radiant clothes, no Moses, no Elijah, no cloud, no voice, only the same four that went up the mountain to begin with, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. What are we going to do with this passage? What, what does this all mean? I mean, it's fascinating. It's incredibly fascinating. But what does it mean? Do we see somehow in the transfiguration finally the real Jesus? Who he really is? Not this man walking the earth, but who Jesus really is? I would say no. That's not exactly what is happening. The real Jesus is the same Jesus we see on every page in Scripture. The Gospels, the letters, Revelation, all of the Old Testament, every page of Scripture points to the real Jesus. No, I don't think we see in the transfiguration the real Jesus. I think in the transfiguration we are given real eyes. We don't see the real Jesus we are giving real eyes to see him. We are giving 20-20 vision. It's like my sweet daughter getting glasses. She finally sees the world as it actually is. The real Jesus is always there, but we're given the spiritual eyes to know him, to comprehend him, to see that the Jesus that they're walking up the mountain is the same Jesus that they see in glory, that Jesus' glory is not somehow separated from the man and the God, that the man Jesus is the glorified Jesus. We see him at the transfiguration with 20-20 vision. And so it's not like Jesus has been hiding himself from the world. I mean, he's there. He's on full display. The world can see him. The problem is the world has bad eyesight. We have bad eyesight, friends. 
The real Jesus is there, and he's always been there. It's not like he has to be changed so we can see it. Our eyes, friends, our eyes need to be open. We need to be given spiritual eyes. We need transfigured eyes to see Jesus. Consider this. Jesus will climb, in Mark's gospel, one more mountain. And though he'll be surrounded by people, he will be all alone. And at the top of this mountain, he will be joined not by Moses and Elijah, but by two criminals. His radiant clothes, his once radiant clothes, will be stained blood red. They'll be distributed among his executioners. On this mountain, he will hear no voice from God, only silence. And he'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And dear friends, if we gaze on that mountain, if we only had the transfigured eyes to see, we will see in Jesus on the cross the glory of God. The same glory that God gave to the disciples to see. And so on the cross, while the world with its um, with the worldly vision, you see defeat, but with transfigured eyes we see victory. Transfigured eyes we see victory. With worldly vision on the cross we see death. With transfigured eyes we see life. With worldly vision on the cross, we see shame. With transfigured eyes, we see God's glory. And through that awful, glorious death, we will once again see transfiguration light, the light of the resurrection. Because three days later, Jesus, dead, crucified on the cross, would rise from the grave. And he would extend that promise to all of us who believe. The transfiguration is inviting us to have transfigured eyes. To see the glory of God for what it really is. That the, this worldly life, when we see things that are defeat, Jesus on the cross is defeat, that somehow in the midst of that, God is proclaiming victory. So what are we going to do about this? Like I said, right before the transfiguration, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, follow me. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. God said to Jesus or to the disciples in this passage, this is my beloved son. What are we supposed to do? Listen to him. And so when we see Jesus with transfigured eyes, we follow him with transfigured lives. To see Jesus with transfigured eyes is to follow him with transfigured lives. What does that look like? Well, there's um, three things I want to close with very briefly. Maybe this would be a great time for y'all to come up by it. Three things I want to close with. One, there are few folks here, I would say, who either don't believe in Jesus or aren't sure if they believe in Jesus or believe in the wrong Jesus, okay? Is, are you following this category? Probably a lot of us fall into one of these categories, either disbelief or wrong belief or simply aren't sure what we believe. And the problem is that Christianity is too often these days presented as something it is not. Jesus is presented as something he is not. Too often we see a Jesus who died so that we might be glorified. But that glory we want is not the glory of Jesus. It's glory that makes us feel good about ourselves, maybe. 
It's glory, perhaps, that gives us wealth and riches. It's glory, that perhaps, that gives us status. And then when our life doesn't line up with what we want from Jesus, we reject him. Because he's not given us what we think we deserve for believing in him. And preachers of this Christianity will say, you just have to have more faith. You just don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, Jesus would give you what you're asking for. But they'll say, well, you're just not living a good enough life. You're not following him closely enough. If you would just do what Jesus has told you to do, then you'd get all those things you desire. Friends, that is false Christianity. That's not transfigured eyesight. That is worldly eyesight, looking at Jesus to meet your needs. And so if you fall into one of those categories, either you don't believe or aren't sure or um, believe in the wrong Jesus, I implore you this morning to consider the transfigured Jesus, the Jesus that gives us eyes to see who he really is, the Jesus that died on the cross. And in that death, we actually see the glory of God. Second thing about a transfigured life. Some of you, many of you in here, know this Jesus and you're following this Jesus. The question is, how can we show in our lives the Jesus of transfiguration glory? Well, the way that Jesus shows us himself and his glory is through the cross, right? He gives up his life so that we might have new life. He dies to himself for our sake. And so I would say to you, a transfigured life is a cross-shaped life. A transfigured life is a cross-shaped life, a life that willingly gives up itself for others. And so that's our call, to risk our popularity, to risk our earthly glory, so that the glory of God can be made known in us in a cross-shaped life. What does this look like? Well, it looks like, maybe for, for some of the children here, it looks like at school and with your friends, living for Jesus, even if it means doing things that might not be cool or popular. It means that for us adults as well, actually. Parents, it means, and you know this, you've done it, giving up your lives for your children. You've got these kids that God has gifted you with. You have to give up part of yourself so that they might grow and know the Lord Jesus. In our marriages, talk about a cross-shaped life. Day in and day out, giving up of yourself for your spouse. What do you have to give up? Is your marriage falling apart? What aren't you giving up? Or at work, maybe it means doing the ethical thing, even though it's not the popular thing, or the thing that will um, get you the glory or the money or the status. What does it look like to follow Jesus at work? Or you folks in retirement, what does it look like to follow Jesus in retirement? I'm glad you are resting, and resting is a godly thing, but he's also calling us to give up some of that. To serve him. What does that look like? When we see Jesus with transfigured eyes, we are called to live a transfigured life. And finally, I'm guessing there's one or two folks in here that know what I'm talking about. That hear what I'm saying. That want to know Jesus. And you're thinking, I simply can't. 
Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's something you haven't done. Wherever you find yourself in this life, you think coming before the glory of God is too much. You're not worthy. You're too sinful. Your life is too out of whack. God will never receive you. Well, let me tell you this. We can see Jesus. We can see each other with transfigured eyes because God has first seen you with transfigured eyes. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are changed. You are changed. God doesn't see the sinner. God doesn't see the person who has completely rejected him, who has done all these awful things in their past. Yes, those have happened, and God knows they're happened, but when you have faith in Jesus Christ and God looks on you, he sees his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Friends, God wants to look at you with transfigured eyes. So let us come before Jesus, before the glorified Christ that is also the crucified Christ, so that we might have glorified lives that are also crucified lives. What does that look like? It is so backwards and so upside down, but it brings glory and honor to God. Why don't we stand? <clears throat> I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to um, sing. And you might not actually want to stand. You might feel like you need to sit, and that's okay. Sometimes God's glory just overwhelms us, and we need to sit. But Lord, I pray that you would give us transfigured eyes. Help us, Lord, to see that the Jesus on the cross is the same Jesus in glory, and that a crucified life is a transfigured life. So, Lord, may our lives be given up to you. There are folks in here that have something on their hearts that they need to lay before your cross, that they might live transfigured lives. And I pray, Lord, that they would do that now. There are some folks in here who have never heard that message of grace, that God would gaze upon sinful people with transfigured eyes. Lord, I do pray that they would know that gaze now. In Jesus' name.